Well, happy Resurrection Sunday, everyone. You don't know how to respond to that, do you? You can just say, happy Easter back, that's fine. Uh, My name's Rob, and uh, it's my pleasure this morning to open up the Bible with you, and as we reflect on Easter, what if? Uh, That's a question that we ask from time to time. It's a hypothetical question. It's the type of question we ask about maybe something that's happened in the past, and we say, what if that was different? Or we think about the future. What if my life changed? Uh, there's a lot of different what ifs that we could ask. Uh, we could ask the question, what if Neil Armstrong didn't land on the moon? Uh, what if uh, the Allied forces in World War II didn't storm Normandy? Uh, what if Gettysburg went differently? We might have personal questions like, what if I was born 3,000 years ago? What if I was born in another part of the world? There's all kinds of different what ifs. Have you ever seen one of those shows, one of those movies where they learn how to either communicate with the past or make their way back to the past and they change things? And you see how the writers project into that the ripple effects that would occur if you were to change history, right? What if this happened and things were different? I think you would agree with me that some what-ifs are inconsequential. Uh, what if your, re- your hair was red instead of brown, right? I mean, maybe for some of you that's a big deal, uh, but for a lot of us, it's not that big of a deal. Or, but there, there, there's inconsequential, but there's also momentous what-ifs, such as what if a Category 5 storm was heading towards Cape Cod right now? I don't know if that's possible, but that would be a big what-if. Now, as we open up the Bible uh, to a passage, there's a writer, Paul. He's writing in 1 Corinthians 15, and he is in this text asking us a what if that I would suggest to you towers above all other what ifs. And so we're going to look at that. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, the text will be up on the screen for you. It begins in verses 12 to 13. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, 1 Corinthians is a little letter that Paul is writing to a church. And when he would write these letters, he would teach and instruct about things. There were certain things in their worldview that he was addressing, that faith would address. Uh, If you know anything about a worldview, it's a belief system, a value system that we hold to uh, without much question. Uh, We just simply embrace it. And everybody has a worldview. Uh, Some of us might not be familiar with precisely what our worldview is, but we have one nonetheless. And uh, we see often that worldviews can present to us faith obstacles. Uh, There was a faith obstacle in the Corinthian worldview. What was that? What was this? They weren't convinced that a body, a body, could or should be raised from the dead. They, They believed in this worldview system that the body was bad, but the soul was good. 
And so why would anyone want to be bodily raised from the dead? And so they kind of just chucked that piece of information out the window. That's a serious faith obstacle when you think about something like resurrection, right? Well, what if we have faith obstacles? Like I said, we have a worldview, and I think that there are certain aspects of our worldview that might cause us to question whether or not resurrection could happen. Let me identify three of those for you. Uh, The first obstacle is that we might struggle with the idea of miracles. And resurrection, when you think about it, is a miracle, if I've ever heard of a miracle. I get it. Uh, We live in a a science-driven day and age. Uh, We also live in a day and age where we kind of live by the mode of, I believe what I can see. But I want to suggest to you this morning that living that sort of worldview uh, ultimately is impossible because we have to trust in all kinds of things that we cannot see. I think if you were to just think about it for just a moment, uh, you would agree with that statement. Even if we deny that something exists because we haven't seen it, sometimes reality comes back to us and says, too bad, it exists. You're just naive. Let me demonstrate this. Here's a funny example. Uh, Back in the 18th century, did you know that the Western world had not yet discovered this furry, fun little friend, the duckbill platypus? I love this guy. Do you love this guy? I hope so. He's cute, isn't he? Maybe not. But there are strange little critters, aren't they? The duckbill platypus, he has fur all over his body, he has the bill of a duck, the tail of a beaver, webbed feet. And here's an odd fact about them. They lay eggs. They're a mammal, but they lay eggs like a reptile. They also, did you know this, have venom? So, when the explorers had brought back this strange little critter to the Western world, Europe's greatest thinkers of the day refused to accept the evidence. They had no category for a duckbill platypus, so therefore it must not be true. Uh, that was until they had brought back a stuffed specimen of the black duckbill platypus, and then everyone started believing. What I'm trying to say here, friends, is that uh, I only believe what I see kind of life is no way to live life. If you're here this morning, you probably have a framework for God. You probably understand in some way, shape, or form that God created the universe, the world that we inhabit. So now the next question is, if God exists and if God could do all of those things, why is it hard to believe in a miracle like the resurrection? Maybe we need to move our position from asking the question, is this possible, to asking the question, is there evidence? And Paul presents a pretty strong evidence in 1 Corinthians 15. You know what he puts forward? Over 500 witnesses. In the court of law, if 500 witnesses were to stand up one after another to substantiate that something had happened, that would go a long way as what? evidence as a truth claim. Let's talk about another obstacle. 
We struggle or may struggle with some of the Bible's social stances. Now, I want to read a a longer reading to you. This is from author Tim Keller, so I'm going to need you to lean in a little bit, put your thinking cap on, and listen, all right? Here we go. The resurrection makes Christianity the most irritating religion on the face of the earth, and the reason is because how how do people decide what they believe They decide they believe by reading it and saying, I like it or I don't like it. Over the years, I've had so many people say, well, I could never be a Christian. I say, why? Well, there are parts of the Bible that I find offensive. I remember years ago, it had to do with money. Today in New York, they are much more offended by what the Bible says about sexuality. I usually ask, well, let me ask you a question. Are you saying because there are parts of the Bible that you don't like that Jesus couldn't have been raised from the dead? They say, well, no, I guess I'm not saying that. I said, well, every part of the Bible is important, but would you please put the ethical teachings aside for a minute? And here's the point. If Jesus was raised from the dead, you're going to have to deal with everything in the Bible. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, I don't even know why you're vexing yourself with the question. But the fact of the matter is Paul was more offended by Christianity than you. He was killing Christians, and we don't advise that, but when he realized that Jesus had been raised, it didn't matter what offended him anymore. It didn't matter because it was true. So ask yourself the same question. If Jesus rose again from the dead, does it change everything? Should it even change what I am offended by? Obstacle three. We may think of the resurrection as being true for one person, but not true for another person. Now, I have here this big jar of Skittles, and we've got some kids in the room, so I know they're excited as they see this. I'm excited too, I like Skittles, they're pretty good. Now, I want to ask you two questions about this jar of Skittles. You ready for this? And I'm going to need some participation here. You guys, you ready? Talk to me. I'm an extrovert. Okay, thank you. How many Skittles are in this jar of Skittles? Say, yeah, that was good. You win. How many? I need two or three people. Yell it out. 880. Someone else? 2,000, 7,400. All right, there are actually 3,041 Skittles in this jar of Skittles. Now, someone was close, kind of, but is that an objective or a subjective question? We would say it is objective. There are not multiple numbers of Skittles in this jar, there's one number. Now, here's another question. Which flavor of Skittle is the right flavor. Red. Red, orange. What else? Yellow. Yellow. I personally think purple is the right flavor, and that's the right answer, because I think it. Now, that's a different question. The right flavor has to do with personal preference, not objective fact. Now, let's ask the question of religion. Is it objective or subjective? Friends, 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is a religious claim which sets up an entire foundation for religious truths, is based on historical claims that happened in real space and time. If you'd like to see some of those evidences, I would recommend to you a book by a guy named Lee Strobel. It is called Evidence, or uh, yeah, Evidence uh, for... Am I saying the book name right? No, The Case for the Resurrection. That's, that's a different guy, evidence, uh, whatever. But I would encourage you to check that out. You know, if we just treat it and write it off as subjective, but there's actual claims being made, we might be just glossing over things that are really important to understand. You see, these types of claims, if they're historical claims, they're not the type of claims that you can say, well, that's true for you, but not true for me. Either Jesus, after three days of being buried, walked out of the tomb, or someone came in and stole his body, or somehow he had resuscitated, or he rose again from the dead, or what? His bones are still somewhere around the city of Jerusalem. There's not multiple options there. There's one option. So before any of us can grasp the transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus, we must first realize that we're talking about something that is a matter of objective fact and not personal preference. So now we have to ask two questions. Is it true or is it not true? Let's start with the negative question. What if Jesus has not been raised from the dead? Does that matter at all? Well, Paul seems to think it does. Look at verses 14 to 19. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We have been found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Now I see in this explanation from Paul, there are six irrevocable losses if Jesus did not raise again from the dead. The first loss is this, that the gospel is a bogus message. Okay, the gospel is a message that is making historical claims. 1 Corinthians 15, the beginning of the passage, Paul says, Christ died. Historical claim, right? Christ was buried. Historical claim, right? Christ rose again from the dead. Historical claim. So if Jesus' bones are somehow tomorrow found in Israel, and they do some genetic testing and DNA testing, they prove that that is indeed Jesus' bones. Guess what happens to the entire edifice of the Christian religion? It collapses, it falls apart. I have no business being up here talking to you this morning. You have no business sitting out there listening to me this morning. We'd be better off going somewhere chasing after bunnies or leprechauns or fairies. That's what we're talking about here. Second, If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, personal faith does nothing for you. When Paul says your faith is in vain, he's essentially saying that your faith would be vacuous, empty, powerless, dead. There would be no reason to believe. 
The power of the Christian faith is that God works through faith in Jesus to produce radical heart change in the individual. But if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then there's nothing that faith can do for you of practical value. Once again, we might as well better believe that dinosaurs created technology and relocated in some distant galaxy as opposed to believing in Christianity. You see what I'm saying here? Third, you can't trust what the Bible says. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Friends, the trustworthiness of the Bible rises and falls on whether or not Jesus rose again from the dead. Now, some people say, well, oh, no, that's not that big of a deal. I mean, you know, there's some really good moral teachings in there that are of value to us. And I just say, really? Really? So you're saying that a book that has deceived and led billions of people for 2,000 years astray is a good thing? No. I wouldn't see that as a good thing if it wasn't true. Karl Marx would be right. Religion would be the opium of the masses. Fourthly, there would be no forgiveness of sin. So when you've done something wrong in your life, when you've wronged someone, when you've done something that you knew in your conscience was not the right thing to do, how would you deal with guilt and shame? How would you move forward? Fifthly, there'd be no hope for the dead. The atheists would be right that when we die, we're no more than worm food. And last, Christians would be, as Paul says, pitiable. He concludes, if in Christ we have hope in this day only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Now, I've heard some people say something like this, well, you know, even if I believe in this Christian thing and it's not true, there, there's a lot of value to that, and, and, and this is the right way to live, and this is good for me. But I've got to tell you, Paul doesn't agree with that. In verse 32 of this same text, he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Uh, essentially, you better live it up now, focus exclusively on what you get, uh, have the best experiences, that you can possibly have in this life right now because guess what? The life clock's counting down real fast. One day you'll be looking in the mirror and you won't be 20, you won't be 30, you won't be 40, you won't be 50, you won't be 60, you won't be 70, you'll be 80. And you'll be looking back and saying, what happened to my life? You know, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, there would be no moral rules There'd be no reason to delay gratification. There'd be no hope for something far better because this is presently all we have. Now, as I talk about all of this, I hope that in your soul, in your heart, you feel a sense of loss to live in a world, a universe, without God, without redemption, without eternity. I hope you feel a sense of loss that there's no hope beyond this life. Because I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you this, I've had some good times, but good times aside, if this is all there is, boy, that would be a tragedy. So what if we turn the question around now? What if Jesus has been raised from the dead? 
Paul elevates the mood for us in verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So this is the paradigm shift. This is the history-altering reality. This is that singular moment in human history where God has unleashed his power into the world. This is the event that if it really happened, it is the event that changes all of those negative losses that we've just talked about into eternal gains. Let's think about all of those points that Paul just said, but now let's insert Jesus into the equation. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then number one, the gospel is the most important message. It lives up to its name. It's good news. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then personal faith has the power to change your life radically. If personal faith, if Jesus rose again from the dead, then you can trust that the Bible is God's word. Because these men who have written this Bible, then they are messengers from God. And when we look at the Bible, then we learn about who God is, what he has done, and how I can come to know him. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then you can find forgiveness for your sins. Maybe you've been carrying guilt and shame for a long time. Maybe there's something in your closet, a skeleton in your closet, and you're saying, how do I deal with that weight? The Bible says that in Christ, God has provided a way to deal with our guilt. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then those who trust Jesus, uh, they die, but they are eternally better than they've ever been. Those loved ones that you know who have trusted Jesus, they are eternally with him. Today, if you trust Jesus, you will be eternally with him. If you have children in your life that you love and you raise them to know Jesus, they will be eternally with him. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, six, Christians are not to be pitied. Christians are to be envied. Why? Because... We know something that others don't. We know why there's more than, to the, more than the eat, drink, tomorrow we die life. There's something far grander at play. There is an eternal story that's unfolding where God is the main character and he's invited us to participate in that story. So now let me ask you the critical question. What if you believed? What if, even if you believe now, what if you invested more of your life energy into this faith? Now, I think that's the big question, and I think that's the question that our mind bumps up against as we listen to a message like this. What if I believed? I mean, think about it. What if God created the universe? Well, then he would be the one who's in charge of the universe. And what if he created you and me? Then he would be the one who's in charge of us. And what if our sin has separated us from God? Well, then I would want to know, is there a way back to him? And what if God, in eternity past, came up with a plan in his mind that he's been preparing for millenniums so that we could come back to him? Well, then I would want to know what that plan is. And what if God's plan was to 
send his son into the world as a baby so that he could live a perfect life that you couldn't live? And what if that same son died on the cross and his death on the cross meant that God's fully paid for every single sin that you have committed in the past and every sin that you will commit in the future? And what if God proved the power, his power over life and death by raising this son again from the dead? And what if the most important decision you will ever make in this life, this one and only life, centers on your decision to believe in Jesus or not to believe? And this is now where we land Because it turns out that God is not interested in you and I living in the land of what if forever. God wants to move you out of the hypothetical land what if into the real concrete land of I believe. Have you ever made that transition? Maybe you've been bumping up against the Christian message, the claims, Jesus, the Bible, what Christians say, but you've never ever moved from what if to I believe. Friend, today is the day to make that move. Do you believe in Jesus or do you not? You can't have one foot in what if and one foot in I believe. You have to be in one place or the other. Now I'm going to ask Kimo to come up here, and I just want us to take two minutes to reflect this morning. Uh, we live in a really fast-paced world, don't we? And there's a lot of things. I don't know about you, but my plans are ticking down through my mind right now, even as I'm preaching to you. I'm confessing, okay? Uh, there's just a lot of things that bombard us and come at us. We don't get a lot of time to just simply stop and focus on one thing but I would encourage you to do that this morning. If you would, would you just close your eyes? If you want to bow your head, that's fine. Just kind of give everyone a little private moment right now.